This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. Working from home like most people are. If you're not working from home, if you're an essential frontline worker, either in a grocery store, in a hospital, doctor's office, any place doing the work that needs to be done, thank you. Be well, be safe. The rest of us are at home. And my guest this week would like us not to be home very much longer. At least that's what I gather from reading his most recent statements. His name is Stephen Moore. He is, just announced, a member of the president's Reopening America Advisory Council. He's been a longtime advisor to the Trump White House. He was an advisor to then-candidate Trump's campaign in 2016 on the economic side of things. He worked very closely with the White House as Congress deliberated and ultimately passed the president's tax cut circa 2017. Steve Moore, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Major. I'm just bummed out that I can't be there with you because you were supposed to pay, you know, buy me a free meal, right? Exactly. Was, we we at this time. show like to prove that there is such a thing as a free meal. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so first of all, how are you doing? How are you holding up under these circumstances? Uh, good, actually. You know, I live uh, in Potomac, Maryland, and uh, right outside the window that uh, of this room, I'm looking out at the beautiful uh, uh, Great Falls National Park. So every day we go out for a run. And yes, I have my scarf. So I'm trying to keep everyone happy, uh, healthy. Uh, But you know, look, I think we're all getting really restless uh, to get back to work and get back to some degree of of normalcy. And I hope that comes very soon. So uh, we are recording this, ladies and gentlemen, on the day that the Labor Department announced another 5 million Americans applied for unemployment insurance. And moments after that, my guest, Stephen Moore, put out a statement that said, starting tomorrow, and I'm quoting this directly, we need to let American business open up their doors and allow tens of millions of workers back earning a paycheck. If we do not act soon, again, I'm directly quoting, hundreds of thousands of Americans could die from economic deprivation and hopelessness. True? You really believe that? Yeah, I do, but I sure hope it doesn't happen. Uh, Look, we know this, that when you have a really... uh, calamitous economic situation, as we have now, 
Uh, we can go a couple of months like this, but I, I really don't think it can go much past that. Uh, every day I get uh, calls from uh, businessmen and women who run small businesses who are saying, if I don't get revenues in and customers in in the next couple of weeks, I'm out of business. And all these loan programs in the world aren't going to prevent a lot of that from happening. Uh, we're seeing every day, the, you've seen the pictures major of the mile-long lines at some of the food banks around the country. People are feeling real harm from this. Uh, there are millions and millions, tens of millions of Americans who live paycheck to paycheck. For people like you and me, I mean, I've taken my, I estimate my income is going to be about down about 60% this year, but I have an income where it's not going to cause me real hardship. I mean, I'm not rich, but I, I, I do, you know, upper middle class. It's the people at the very bottom who are really facing hardship. We know that prolonged unemployment can cause all sorts of problems from, uh, you know, from alcoholism to drug abuse to suicide, depression. So, uh, you know, there's a rule of thumb major that every one percentage point increase in the unemployment rate is associated with about 10,000 additional deaths. That's not a perfect relationship. It's, It's pretty close. So our unemployment rate from 3.5%, which it was in February, uh, to 20%, which is what many economists believe could happen in the next month or two. Uh, that's, if my math is right, that's about 175,000 deaths right there. So when you add that to the trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that we're spending and printing, you, you know, we're making some major decisions that are going to affect Americans, uh, not just now, but for years and maybe decades to come. You mentioned that statistic. If those uh, who remember the movie, The Big Short, remember there was a line from Brad Pitt in which he says that in the middle of the movie, the one percentage point increase in joblessness equates to a 10 percent. Is that where that comes from? Yes, yes. I, it's I mean, in the it's book and of, it's in the movie, yes. Yeah. Okay, well, good. I'm, not, I'm glad you told me that. But hey, look, maybe it's a it's little bit It's a pop culture off. reference, but it, it's, it speaks to something that is a larger yeah. dynamic when yeah. people are facing economic, then personal, then, then sometimes psychological or other deprivation. Yeah. And look, I, I'm, I, ha- frankly, I'm happy to have this debate with people about, uh, you know, what is the appropriate time for us to open our economy, what steps we have to take. But I'm, I, frankly, I'm tired of people trying to take the moral high ground and saying, oh, Steve Moore is trying to put greed or profits ahead of, of uh, people's lives. Look, I, you know, I'm sorry, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, but the people you're hurting the most with the shutdown are the people at the very bottom. The people, you know, I'll give you just one example. The other day I was walking by Union Station in Washington, D.C. I know you go by there oftentimes, Major. Mm-hmm. And usually there's, uh, you know, bustling activity. There was no one. It's it's kind of a uh, uh, graveyard now. But when you go by there now, there's still, I, I noticed there were about 150 cabs parked there. And I kind of knocked on the cab driver who was second or third in line and he was kind of slumped over and and i said how long have you been waiting here for a ride and he said i've been here for four hours yeah, yeah. so i mean just, and th- these are the kind of little hardships that are taking place all over the country and i just i don't want it to continue i think we've got to be very smart about a new strategy that is not either or but takes the best public health measures available to uh, get our economy open. Because look, if, uh, at some point, uh, a society without an economy can't function. Right. But in your statement, and I want to get this clear from you, you said starting tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the world that Steve Moore would like to see, social distancing and lockdown orders end tomorrow. 
No, no, no. So let me clarify. Uh, I did say tomorrow, I actually think we should have started this a week or two ago. Uh, there, there are, and by the way, I'm not a health expert uh, at all. I am an economist, but uh, you know, we do, I do know a little bit about what's going on in terms of the country. I mean, you'll just look at the map of where the virus is severe and where it's not. Uh, we know this is, as with every pandemic, it's an urban disease. Uh, so we have about 12 or 13 you know, major metropolitan areas from San Francisco to Seattle, to Denver, to Detroit, to Chicago, to New Orleans, to uh, to uh, Newark and, and uh, New York that are very heavily impacted. And I'm not suggesting that they should be opened up. In fact, they're going to probably have to be uh, closed down for, you know, hopefully just a few more weeks, but we just don't know about those big cities. But I'm talking about places like Boise, Idaho. I'm talking about Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm talking about the main Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, they they should those orders should be lifted so that uh, people can start get back getting back to work because we just don't have a lot of cases there. Now, look, there's risks with any decision we make. I mean, there, you know, the problem here, Major, is there's no there's no great solution. Year, right. I mean, every solution that we can take has risks and, and benefits to it. And what I'm saying is that uh, we'd be smart about when we open up, where we open up and who we allowed it to go back to work. I want to play a soundbite today from uh, Lindsey Graham, someone I know you know well. He was on The View. This is April 16th, talking about what he thought would be a way to evaluate when to go back to a full, fully functioning economy, at least partially. Let's play that. On what we need to do better, I think the key to me is testing. Uh, I can't really blame the president, but we are struggling with testing uh, uh, at a large scale. You really can't go back to work until we have more tests that shows who has it and who doesn't. And we're beginning to turn, turn the corner on that. Steve Moore, evaluate that. Yeah, I, don't, I love Lindsey Graham. He's a good friend. I, I don't... I, by the way, first of all, everyone agrees, everyone, no matter where your position is on, you know, keeping the economy locked down or when and where to open it up, everyone agrees that testing would be a huge asset to us. And, and we're, we're well along the way towards opening the economy completely once we have testing. But I don't want to wait. To, I, I don't think we can wait for three or four more weeks for testing. I just don't. I think every day that goes by, you know, the rate of infection to the economy is very similar to the rate of infection of this disease. Uh, I think a lot of Americans believe, Major, wrongly, that, and by the way, the opinion polls are very clear about this, that roughly two out of three Americans support the shutdown of the economy because they're very afraid of this virus. And I'm not, look, I have two or three really good friends who've been very sick with them, with the virus, and both of the two of them came very close to dying. They were, you know, uh, in, in the uh, hospital, very sick. But uh, what people have to realize is most Americans, the people I talk to who support the shutdown, they say, we, we keep the economy closed, let's say, for another month, and then it'll be, it'll be safe for everybody to go back outside, and all of a sudden, everything's going to be back to normal. And I'm here to tell you, that ain't happening, folks. If you think that the economy is going to be back to normal, it, it's not. There's going to be real devastation that lasts longer than this one-month period. And I want to pick up on that line of reasoning on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to The Takeout. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. 
Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Steve Moore is my special guest. Uh, for those of you watching us on CBSN, great to be back with you. We were on the website last week with Craig Fugate, FEMA director during the Obama administration, but we're on for the full viewing all across the CBSN platform. Glad to be back. We're all adjusting and adapting as best as we can. And Steve Moore is going to talk to us about maybe some thoughts we are thinking about, but we haven't yet implemented in terms of reopening the economy. Steve Moore is an advisor to the White House, has been for a long time. He was to Donald Trump's campaign. He's just been named to this reopening of the economy task force. Um, I want to play some sound from the Rose Garden Tuesday of this week where the president name drops Stephen Moore. Let's listen. Some of the thought leaders that we're going to have, and there are some others that we are having, we're just waiting to hear, but everybody's saying yes, I must say. John Allison, Heritage Foundation, K. Cole James, great person, Hoover Institute, Condoleezza Rice, another great person, Art Laffer, Steve Moore. That's right. You heard it, ladies and gentlemen. So, Steve, how often have you been in contact with the White House uh, and how frequently have you emphasized this message, which you mentioned in the first segment, you've been wanting this to happen, at least on a limited basis, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So uh, the other name you mentioned, uh, you played the clip with Art Laffer being named and, and myself. And I think the next on that list was Steve Forbes. So the three of us, Forbes, uh, uh, Laffer and myself, have kind of banded together uh, to to try to speak out with one voice about the, the best economic policies ahead. And I have been saying this for the last couple of weeks, that, that there's real uh, economic costs that will last a long time and cause significant damages to people, including, uh, you know, uh, an increase in poverty rates and unemployment and things like that, that we don't want to see. So, and that's, I think, the shared message of uh, a lot of conservatives. Now, it's, it's fascinating to me how this has become almost a kind of ideological split where, uh, if you look, for example, the states where a lot of the red states are saying, let's open up, let's get back to work. And a lot of the blue states are, are being more hesitant. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure why that is, but I do think that the states should be able to make up their own minds here. And you mentioned in segment one that you're an economist. Uh, you will remember, Steve, during the time you were potentially going to be placed on the Federal Reserve Board, some people said you're in fact not an economist. You have a master's degree, but haven't authored or co-authored papers that have been peer-reviewed. How would you describe your training as an economist? Well, I've been in this game a long time. I've been in uh, economic policymaking for 35 years. Uh, and uh, I've, you know, I've really learned from at the knee of two of the great economists of all time. Uh, one was the great Julian Simon, who was my mentor at the University of Illinois. He was the one who wrote the famous book, uh, The Ultimate Resource, that who taught us that we're not running out of oil and gas and we're not running out of food and that people are the ultimate resource. And that's a classic. And I learned my economics right from his knee. He and I worked together for 10 years. And then I met Art Laffer. And uh, Laffer, I've learned a lot of my economics from him about, you know, if you attack something, you get less of it. If you attack something less, you get more of it. And so, uh, but I've been on the front lines of a lot of these policy debates. And as you know, we've, we've covered a lot of these things together over the years. 
Right, and you were on the Wall Street Journal editorial That's board. Right. You ran the club for growth for many years where you got into politics, the sort of the politics of economic policy on the pro-growth side. So you've played a lot of different roles in this world. But as a classically trained PhD in economist, you're not that, I'm not right? a PhD economist. Awesome. All right. As we were going into break, you said, look, folks, if you think that there's going to be this bounce back, you might be misleading yourself. Well, one quadrant of the country might think that's true because they heard the president predict that. <laughs> the president said that from the podium. There's going to be this big bounce back. You've got to believe it. It's going to we're going to boom again. Well, You're nervous about you that, know, I gather. I, what I would say about that is that, um, you know, we all want what's called the V-shaped recovery. Right. Right. That's where you, you know, you're going to we're going to have a big swift decline that's going to last in my opinion, at least three more months, uh, even if we opened up the economy tomorrow. Uh, but you, what you want to do, and, and that might be as deep, by the way, as maybe 20%, which is gigantic. I mean, that's a gigantic decline. Uh, then what we want to do is just zoom out of that. And that's what the president was talking about. Um, but you're going to have a three-month period. In other words, we're still on the downslope, and we're going to be on the downslope for a number of months. And uh, so the president feels strongly that we can really zip out of this quickly. I'm, I'm a little more skeptical. And by the way, it's not just the president who's saying that. There was a report put out yesterday by Goldman Sachs, one of the top investment firms, that said, hey, we think we're going to have 15% growth or something like that in the third or fourth quarter. I don't remember. But, you know, they see that swift V-shape. I hope it happens. I'm a little more skeptical. So a moment ago, Steve, you talked about this ideological division that mm -hmm. you're not comfortable with, but you're beginning to see manifest. Somebody you also know well, who I know well, John Harris, uh, founder of Politico. Yeah. He's got a different life now, but he writes for Politico magazine with some frequency. And he wrote a piece about the coming backlash. Yes. And I want to read you two paragraphs from that and get your... Yes reaction on the other side. So John Harris writes, among the questions looming over American politics is about the nature of what promised to be multiple backlashes over different dimensions of the coronavirus crisis. Most obvious is what tr price Trump pays for his administration's tardiness in responding to the contagion in its early stages. Less obvious is what price supporters of activist government pay for the most astonishing and disruptive intervention in the everyday life of the nation since World War II. He goes on. Yeah. The imminent libertarian surge is not a thing, a sure thing, but it more, it, but it is more than a hunch. In informal conversations, one hears the sentiment, even from people I know to be fundamentally progressive and inclined to defer to whatever health officials say is responsible and necessary to mitigate the worst effects of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Meaning, even progressives are chafing under this. What do you think is the coming backlash? Do you perceive a coming backlash? And do you think it will have ideological dimensions? We're seeing a backlash right now as you and I speak. So we're, you saw what happened the other day in Michigan where there were some a uh, bunch of protesters outside the Michigan Capitol. That kind of thing is happening. Uh, you know, I think you're going to see more of those protests. Now that's coming from the right. These are sort of taxpayer groups, libertarian groups who are protesting about the economy being shut down, the out of control spending, but also the uh, uh, abridgments of personal freedom. I think that the governors uh, in many states uh, took this too far last weekend during Easter weekend when they were shutting down um, church services in ways that people thought were heavy handed and fight uh, to, to of religion. Um, in terms of this issue about uh, the kind of libertarians, I have to ask you, I'm going to throw this right back in your face because you're a political guy. I mean, where, where are the civil libertarians on the left? I mean, one of the things that I found most interesting in my 35 years or so in politics and economics is 
you know, it used to be the left was the it was the American Civil Liberties Union stood up against big government taking away our rights. I don't hear I, I'm not hearing a lot of objections of people on the left. In fact, most of them are, have turned more status. They they want to, the government to, to take swift action against people who dare uh, violate these curfews or aren't doing the proper amount of social distancing or aren't shutting down their business. So uh, it's interesting to me that the right has become more uh, the Rosa Parks of the world than the left is. Well, they would, I would presume, say civil rights are different than health rights and you don't have a right to infect someone. You don't have a right to recklessly increase someone's potential risk of exposure as opposed to you do have a right to assert that in America your rights under the Constitution should be recognized equally and you have a right to assert them. I think that's probably where they No, I, I think that's a fair point. And, and what's interesting to me is the left has, has moved more in the direction of, you know, safety over rights. And, and, you know, you and I could have a debate about where that line should be drawn. I just wish where I wish the ACLU and other groups were out there protesting uh, some of the decisions that are made by governments in terms of, for example, what happened this Easter Sunday and shutting down church services and things of that nature. But that there, this is going to be a battle that will go on for many months. I think that we need to come to an agreement. I bet you and I could probably sit down. We may not agree a lot of the, you know, exactly where we draw the line, but certainly we, you understand that we cannot allow our economy to collapse, right? We, we have to make very smart decisions that, that calibrate the health of the American people with the rights of individuals, but also the well-being of our economy. Without an economy, we don't have a society. Right. And that calibration, that risk factor, how do you measure it? How do you speak about it? How do you quantify it? Are all part of the things that this task force, I think, will be having conversations with the president about. And on the other side of this break, I want you to give us, to the degree you can, some idea of the, the tension that goes on in these very conversations. My guest is Steve Moore. He's an advisor to the president. He's outspoken on the need to get the economy up and running sooner rather than later. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to, watching, and most thoroughly enjoying The Takeout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Uh, Steve Moore is my guest. Steven, do you like Steven or Steve? Which is which is preferred? Anyone who, who dials you up uh, on the Google machine can find both. Major, just don't don't call me a jerk, okay? Uh, it's Steve. <laughs> call me Steve. Okay. <laughs> I've been called a lot of bad things over the last year. But so you, it's true. You and I have uh, have uh, been on the si- same side on a lot of issues over the years, but sometimes have locked horns too. But I really have always uh, admired your integrity and, and uh, your thoughtfulness in addressing these policy issues, even when you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> even when I'm wrong, which, which is uh, on rare occasions. So, uh, clearly, the president in public is and has been feeling the tension of this. Uh, he, he talked aspirationally about Easter as a time. I think he wanted to. I think his preference would have been something uh, opening along the lines. Then the data kept mm-hmm. presenting itself in an unrelenting way. And as Dr. Fauci has said, you know, the virus tells you a lot of this information. You don't get to tell it. But describe, based on your conversations, not only with the president, but with Larry Kudlow, the top economic advisor of the National Economic Council and others in the White House, how they're trying to weigh these things and how 
the task force that you're now a member of is going to try to advise and weigh these various matters. So I got to address one thing related to this of something you said earlier about the president being late to the game in terms of responding to the virus. And and then, by the way, there are a number of ads, you know, political ads that are running on uh, CBS and CNN and uh, many networks now, basically making this point that Trump was late to the game. There's a problem with that argument, and you know what it is, Major, which is the president way back in January made the single most important decision that probably ended up saving tens of thousands of lives in the United States, which, which was shutting down travel with China. And he was roundly criticized by, you know, by the New York Times and others. He's a racist, he's a xenophobe, and so on. But that was the single most important term of containing the the, uh, the infection rate of this virus. Uh, there, these are very tough decisions that the president has to make. I, I've told him uh, in person, I said, Mr. President, this is your Churchillian moment. You know, you have to rise to the occasion here. I don't think I would want to have to be in his position to make these very difficult decisions about uh, you know, what, are you going to jeopardize human health if you, or, you know, are you going to have more death rates if you do X versus Y? What are the implications for how high are we willing to let the unemployment rate go up? It's reached uh, 22 million unemployed since we shut down the government. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people are being negatively affected. So it's a, it's goes back to that word that I used earlier, a calibration of rights of citizens economic prosperity and health. And that, that's really a difficult thing to do. And as you well know, Steve, the president asserted earlier this week, he has absolute ultimate total authority. <laughs> he didn't he really say that. <laughs> he did. He did. No, he did. He said exactly that. He well, said the governors know, and he he knows that he, he was obviously counseled because yeah. the next day he was much more <laughs> flexible about that. Governors do have a great say in this. That's the way our federal system is. Yeah created and the way it's always worked. It's the way I know you ideologically right. support and defer to. So that's also part of this equation. It is. There are guidelines that come from the federal government. There is persuasive powers of the presidency, but many of the le the uh, legitimized powers re rest in the hands of governors. So I just have to say one thing about this idea where he said, you know, I have absolute power. I mean, it is interesting to me that, you know, as part of my job, I have to read the New York Times every day. And all I've been yelling and screaming about for the last three or four weeks is how dare Donald Trump let these states remain open. He should take executive action and he should have a national emergency and shut down every state. So we have no, you know, every all the economic activity. And now when he says he wants to open up things and, and uh, as, as executive power, oh, he doesn't have the authority to do that. So he has the authority to shut down the economy, but he doesn't have the authority to open it up. Uh, my, my view, you know this, is that we should rely on federalism. That's the great thing about America. The ingeniousness of our founding fathers is that we are states created our federal government, not the other way around. And let's let the governors make these decisions. Uh, but the president also should should provide a lot of guidance. The, exec the federal government should provide guidance about the best practices to to uh, to take into mind when you open up the uh, their economy and and that kind of thing. So I think that's where the president is now. So uh, you know, on the right, in some quarters of the right, uh, there's been criticism for Dr. Fauci. Uh, do you have any criticism of Anthony Fauci? I have some criticisms of him. I think he's uh, I, I, my own opinion. Again, people can disagree on these things. Uh, I think we've we've leaned way too much in the direction of uh, keeping the economy shut down to try to save every life, not realizing that we're causing huge hardship uh, for citizens, uh, again, the people at the bottom and, and businesses. And, and that's, uh, you know, we're gonna suffer a big 
loss of living standard because of this. Um, so uh, I would say that. Then Fauci, you know, he made this comment a week or two ago that still sticks in my uh, craw, where he said, I'm sorry about the economic inconvenience of this. And that's just um, it's an insulting thing to say. This is not an inconvenience. This is a calamity. This is a horrid horrid situation when you have 30 million people who've lost their jobs. You know, I lost my job one time and that, I don't know if you've ever lost a job, but yes. you know, get it, being unemployed is a really tough thing. And it's, uh, it, it, it really affects depression and your psyche and uh, your use of alcohol, all of these things. So this is not a minor inconvenience. It's a major, major problem for our economy. And again, people can come down one way or the other on this. I want to see a calibration. I want to see in a smart way, getting the American economy up and running so we can get Americans back to work. Were you uh, whispering or saying to the president, the cure can't be worse than the virus? It sounds I, like that's something you, you I know, think I, I've said. I, I, I No, I wasn't saying that, but that's the way I do feel. I, I feel at this point the cure is worse than the virus itself. Uh, and I, again, I'm not minimizing this. By the way, I have two family members who think I'm crazy. Right? You know, so they, <laughs> they, they think, you know, shut that guy up. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But uh, it is interesting because the health officials tend to, you know, it's what's the old saying, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. And so the health officials are maybe appropriately looking at, okay, what what every step we can take to minimize the spread and the, uh, the lethality of this virus. I'm an economist. I'm looking at, okay, what, how, what are we going to do to protect the people who work in the businesses that are people that make our society possible without production? We don't have hospitals. We don't have medicines. We don't have food. We don't have homes. That's what I'm worried about. And what was your take on the $2.3 trillion lifeline bridge legislation? There's a lot in there that I would think uh, ideologically and intellectually you might have found objectionable, but under the under the time crunch and the dire circumstances, you probably swallowed. But what are your thoughts on it? So uh, I supported the idea of a loan program right out of the gates. You know, we need to get loans to, to businesses because it seems like five years ago, but it was only, what, five or six weeks ago that we had this booming economy. And we were, Trump was on this way, in my opinion, to be having a landslide re-election if the economy had stayed as strong as it was. Uh, and so we had a, a, a great um, economy. And now I thought I lost my train of thought. What was the question again? Uh, so so the, the, the question is, um, what would... Well, I lost the, I lost the question too. <laughs> I went off on a tangent, and I can't remember what you were actually asking me about. Uh... So let's let's see if we, you, and I can both uh, pick up the threads of the of the, the lost threads of the conversation. Um, if oh the, oh the, the two point three trillion oh, dollar <laughs> legislation, yeah, this, so, this this ma this massive thing yeah, that looms right. over the entire economy, how I how simply I can forget. Yeah, me too. So anyway, uh, so uh, my idea was, and then this was uh, an idea widely held that that it's appropriate, and I'm a limited government guy, as you know, but it's appropriate in a crisis like this, especially when it's caused by a governmental action to shut down businesses. We don't we want those businesses not to go bankrupt. We want we want them to survive. So when the economy back in good health, they can get right back up and, and we can have that V-shaped uh, recovery we all hope for. And so the idea was to provide the loans. And what happened was 
that uh, instead of loans, I don't know how this got inserted into the bill, but this is an important story that's not been told a lot in the media. It was turned into a grant. So the way it worked is if you had a company and you had say 30 employees and you agreed not to lay any of them off, you could get a, say a $3 million loan from the government and it would be transferred into a grant. So in other words, you've got to keep the money. So what do you think is happening? Uh, this was so predictable, I predicted it would happen. Every healthy business in America is signing up for the loans. Right? right? Because it's free money. I mean, I, I get calls every day from some of my own members saying, how do I get that free money from Washington? Right. That wasn't the idea. And it's had negative consequences for two reasons. One is the business that need the money can't get it because all the, you know, the politically connected businesses are. I'm shocking that that would happen, right? <laughs> Hold that thought. We'll pick that up on the other side of the break. I'm Major Garrett. That's the voice of Steve Moore. You're listening to, watching, and most thoroughly enjoying The Takeout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Steve Moore is my special guest. He is an advisor to the Trump White House. He's also a member of the newly formed Task Force on Reopening the American Economy in the Era of COVID-19. Steve, continue that thought about the problem with the grants versus loan program. Uh, probably not something that can be remedied. There's already a vast call among Republicans to put more money in this. Good idea or bad idea? Are we just stuck with it for, for the time being? Well, I think it can be fixed. I think we have to turn the spigot off and not allow companies to just take money from the taxpayers. And we got to target that loan money major to those small businesses that need them. Because every day I'm getting, again, I get a lot of calls every day, but from businessmen and women who say, look, uh, if I don't get uh, either a loan or some customers in the door in the next week, I'm out of business. I sell my assets. And by the way, once a company goes through bankruptcy, you put it in the body bag, it can't be resurrected. And that's what's making me really nervous and why I'm so, uh, so um, eager to get opened up because there's only so long these businesses can go without customers. What businesses are you most worried about, Steve? Are you worried about restaurants? Are you worried about like nail salons? Are you worried about dry cleaners? I mean, all of these are small businesses. All of these are things that are not mega employers, but their service and they're crucial to not only their lives, but the lives of every American who lives anywhere. Yes. And, and so that's right. It's, it's the restaurants and the pubs and the bars, but that's only part of it. Let me just give you one concrete example. I have a friend who owns about a hundred apartment units and that's his, that's how he makes his money. And he owns these buildings and he rents them out. And most of them are moderate, uh, you know, moderate uh, income uh, units. And he told me, I talked to him last week, he said, Steve, starting around March 15th, rental payments come in at close to zero. In other words, everybody just stopped paying their rent. Why? Because they didn't have, they didn't have a job. They didn't have income. So they couldn't, or else they, there were also rules that said you couldn't be evicted during the crisis. So people would stop paying their, their, uh, the rent. So think about how this reverberates throughout the economy. So now my friend doesn't get the rental payments, but guess what? He has to pay a mortgage on the building, right? So he can't pay the mortgage. So now the bank doesn't have the mortgage payments. And these are the kind of negative feedback loops that make me very nervous. I think you could see a crumbling uh, of, of a lot of the economy if we don't get going. But certainly you're right uh, that this is the service companies in, in particular. And by the way, we're talking about tens of millions of of people who are who are employed by those uh, industries and they need their jobs back. 
Tom Barrick, who's someone who also is a good friend of the president's, he's an advisor at certain levels. Uh, he wrote a column a couple, three weeks ago, got a tremendous amount of attention about the projected, from his vantage point, collapse of commercial real estate. Meaning on the other side of this, people are going to, and companies are going to reevaluate how much space do they need? How many people actually need to come into the office? What are the productivity curves with people working at home? They thought they would collapse. Actually, they found out their productivity curves are higher. Commercial real estate is an enormous part of almost every urban economy, and it's an enormous driver of revenue for cities and states. What do you project there? No, I, I, I hate to say it, but I agree with him on that. I, I'm not quite as dire. But I'll give you another just real life example. I mean, the other day I actually got my car. Don't tell anybody I got my car and rode around town, but I roamed by one of our shopping centers. And this is a big shopping center. I won't mention what, which one it was. And, I, and there are probably 150 stores in that uh, shopping center. There were six cars in the parking lot. It's very likely that that shopping center is not coming back. They're going to probably have to take a bulldozer and just bulldoze that whole thing down. Those are the kind of lasting consequences. Now, remember, shopping centers were already in trouble yes. before this happened. And this is sort of the, the, the final nail in the coffin. Yeah, so there were stressors all through the sort of retail concept of anchor stores in yeah. fixed places where people walk through all day. And what you're seeing now are the big stores, either Walmart, Target, Macy's. large supermarkets, yeah. and I, clearly Amazon. Yeah. They're not having any trouble. They're actually doing everything they can. Amazon is adding employees, so is Walmart. Yeah. But the idea of mass centralized collection, distribution, and online sales it seems to me this crisis will accelerate those already existing trends. Another exa another example of what you're saying is AMC theaters is saying that we, we may not there might not be movie theaters anymore in the United States. I mean, I hope that's all wrong. And sometimes we get, you know, too apocalyptic about these things. But the world is going to change a lot <laughs> in, in the next uh, six months, and and uh, in many ways not for the better. How do you understand the functioning of this task force? Uh, it's to provide advice to the president uh, on these incredible uh, logistical issues of where you open up the economy, how you open it up, uh, all of these things. You know, uh, for example, it makes sense to me that for senior citizens, people of the age of 70, we know that most of the deaths are people of that age. You want to keep them, obviously, uh, in isolation or in uh, kind of sequestration. Uh, but uh, you, you make these decisions. But I've got an idea for you uh, that I hope the president is watching the show because I feel strongly about it. He always does. I think the president should appoint a, uh, a um, uh, recovery czar, someone who is not political, a great businessman or woman who has great admiration around the country. I just have one person who, who pops right. to mind would be someone like Fred Smith, who runs FedEx, right. one of our great companies, because these are logistical issues that nobody in the White House, including the president, who I greatly admire, they don't have the capacity to deal with that. And, and, you, and you can't have these decisions, Major, being made in a political way. Right. You know, we, we know that half the country loves Trump and half of them hates him. So any decision he's going to make people are going to be suspicious of. So I don't know. What do you think about that idea? Because I know that that would be something that we could bring the country together around these steps that need to be taken to keep us healthy and, and prosperous. I mean, it appears, Steve, that the president's moving in that direction because this very task force and its bipartisan nature, there are Democrats from yeah. the Senate and the House on that. There are lots of different people, lots of different voices. He's trying to create a mechanism by which it's, it's, there is I, amplification and persuasive yeah echo chambers for him whenever he comes down with these guidelines. He wants people behind him to say, you know what, 
this is apolitical or as much as it can be. And it seems like he's moving in that direction anyway. I think it has to go beyond that. I, I think, and I'm not an expert on this. You may know the story, but I think GM, the GM president during World War II was assigned a kind of czar task uh, to, to deal with the economic transitions that had to happen. Uh, I just think it would be in the president's interest. And maybe you create a, you have like a Republican CEO like a Fred Smith and like maybe a Democratic CEO like uh, Jeff Bezos. And you have them come, come together and say, because... It has to be made by a couple of people at the very top to make these high level recommendations, because my God, whether you love Trump or hate him, we got to get this right. We can't screw this up or, or we're going to see a lot of additional deaths and we're going to see a lot of additional business failures and uh, millions more in unemployment lines. Right. And in the 35 seconds we have left, uh, do you foresee that what do you think the next two weeks look like? for this task force and for this economy and for this president? You're gonna to start to see states opening up on a limited basis in the next two weeks. Uh, they're gonna kind of go slowly. And I think that's the right way you do it. You do it on a rolling basis. And states, one of the great things about federalism major is states can learn from each other, right? And this works, this doesn't work. It's gonna be an experimentation process. And uh, let's just uh, hope and pray that we get it right. Steve Moore, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Stay for one more segment, a little bit more fun and games, a little bit less on the dire economics of COVID-19. I'm Major Garrett. This has been The Takeout with Steve Moore, back for the Takeout Outtake Especial on the other side of this break. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett, working from home, as I have been for many, many weeks. Steve Moore is our special guest. Steve Moore is an advisor to the President of the United States in good times. He's a member of the Reopening the American Economy Task Force now in these crisis times of COVID-19. He was a significant advisor to the President during his campaign in 2016 and in the formulation and ultimate legislative approval of the President's tax cuts of 2017. So he's a significant voice in talking about where we are and where the economy could be heading in the not-too-distant future. Steve, along those lines, uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who has a large chain of restaurants in the Dallas area. He had to lay off 1,800 employees. And his immediate reaction is some of my employees are not coming back because they're getting construction jobs, they're doing other things. And he was other thing he was worried about, he's like, well, in the $2.3 trillion lifeline bridge bill that was passed and signed by Congress, passed by the, signed by the president, unemployment benefits are of a not extravagant but generous nature, and some of my people won't come back because they will earn more not coming back than they would have earned working for me. Is that a concern you have? Yeah, talk about the law of unintended consequences. In fact, I did a, uh, an analysis of that, and uh, your friend is correct. That we this is another mistake we made in the two trillion dollar bill. Uh, I don't have a problem with providing people with unemployment benefits because so many millions of people have become unemployed and there are no jobs out there right now. But you don't give people 100% of what they were getting before because then you do give an incentive for people to leave. I have a friend who, as you do, uh, who owns a construction company and he has about 100 employees. And he said the day after they passed that bill, 30 of his employees just walked off the job. You know, because a construction job, that's that's tough work. You, know, you and I have fun jobs. That's really tough, you know, uh, grueling work to be on a construction crew. And so think about this just from fairness. How is it fair for the 70 
who are continuing to work and getting up at six in the morning and working 40, 45 hours a week. And the other guy goes home and watches TV and he could get as much or, or even more than the people who's working. So we, we got to fix that. Are you glad that the legislation covered under unemployment benefits, people in the so-called gig economy and uh, self-employed and contractors and things like that, which had not historically been covered by unemployment benefits? You know, I, I guess so. I mean, I, I don't like unemployment benefits because I like employment, not unemployment. You know, <laughs> no, so understood. I, I want to get people back to but work. But to recognizing like them as parts of the economy in ways they hadn't been recognized before, because that is an emerging part of the economy. It's a real part sure of it. It is. It's getting bigger every single day. And th- those are the new decisions, policy decisions. I haven't really thought about that one, so I don't have a great answer. Got it. So uh, we have three threshold questions we ask all of our guests in this fun and games portion of it. So in no particular order. Take these in whichever order you prefer. Uh, most influential book in your life? All-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? And if you've got a lot of time at home now, you're going to put some headphones on and really get into some great music. What is it, artist or genre? So I'll answer the, the last one first because I've been listening to this over and over again. The greatest music ever made is the uh, second side of Abbey Road, incredible with Mean Mr. Mustard and, uh, you know, The End and... Uh, yep. All of those great, great songs. I mean, I just listened to that over and over again. Amazing talents. A book, uh, you know, number nine on the bestseller list right now in, uh, in fiction is is 1984 by George L. Orwell. Given the times we're in, I think it would be great for people to read that. And um, what was the first? <laughs> what was the first one? Uh, the second. Well, you got the first and the third. Uh, the second is movie. Oh gosh, um, I'm gonna have to go with Bill Murray's "What About Bob." <laughs> Because Why? every time I watch it, I laugh and laugh and laugh. And we Very need good. some humor now, right? We need exactly. to... we definitely we definitely need humor. I was um, going to say the Godfather, but everybody says that. Lots of people say the Godfather <laughs> for sure. That's a repeater on the show, no doubt about it, and for good reason. Um, so, uh, how much do you regret not being on the Federal Reserve Board? You know, I was just thinking about when you asked me about that earlier, you know, in saying you're not a PhD economist, I actually think that was one of my attributes. I mean, sort of serious that mm-hmm. it's kind of a club over there of PhD economists. And, you know, as some people who came to my defense and that said, hey, maybe having a different perspective would be a good thing. And by the way, Paul Volcker was not an economist. Did you know that? And he was yes. one of our great Fed chairman. So do I regret it? Times like now I do because the Fed is made. We didn't even get into this. Maybe next time, uh, you know, major. The Fed is making decisions that trillions and trillions of dollars of decisions, things they've never done before. They've become a massive commercial bank, loan, lending company stuff. We should be thinking about whether that we want some kind of an unelected officials making these major, major decisions affecting our country. And do you oppose those interventions from the Fed? I think the Fed in this in this particular crisis has done mostly the right thing. We need massive dollar liquidity in the economy. You saw consumer prices are falling. That means there's not enough dollars. Just keep getting dollars into the economy. Because remember, during the Great Depression, that was an era of uh, deflation. Deflation can be as bad as inflation. Mm-hmm. Do you still believe that uh, climate change, as it is colloquially referred to, is the biggest scam of the last two decades? I think it's. I think we are way overreacting to this, and the idea that governments are going to come together and changing the patterns of of, uh, of the weather and the climate on the planet is is absurd. And the, to those who are By saying, way, technology. "Well, technology, we we need to re- re- growth and progress and technology are going to ch- save the planet, not governmental action." 
And before I let you go, what, it, how do you react when you see stories like, well, a silver lining of COVID-19 is cleaner skies, less crowded streets, and uh, a better environmental? Yeah, it's the degrowth movement. I mean, think about how clean the environment would be if there were none of us, right? But that's why the other great book that people should read, I'll say this on the way out, is Julian Simon's great the ultimate resource. It'll change your whole perspective on the world. And it was written 30 years ago, but as relevant today as ever. Steve Moore, it's been a pleasure. I thank Steve you very major. much. Be well, be safe, be healthy. Next time I want the food, I want the drinks, I want all that stuff. When, when we're on food. the other side of this, I yeah. guarantee you, all, all right. will be provided thank and you. enjoyed. Take See you. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Enjoy the takeout. See you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.